Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Well, Bob, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Okay. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, the book is The Times Were a Changing, 1964. The 60s arrived and the battle lines of today were drawn. I have increasingly become interested in this period of history, um, the Cold War U.S. era, and obviously um, all the things that were happening in this time of period. It's not just the Cold War. There's all kinds of stuff happening. And of course, your your book is gonna is 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 in this period. And so it's um in the US, there's all kinds of things. It's just it's almost impossible, I think, to document what all happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's just yeah, as a matter of fact, um, um people will ask me often how long I was working on this, and they say, Well, probably since about 1964, in a sense, I was thought that early about writing a book about the time, but then I kind of got an idea of doing a really complete history of the 60s, probably around 1990, and started doing that, but then I got other projects, but um, nobody has ever done a really complete history of the the decade in terms of all the cultural, political, economic, uh, Vietnam, uh, so many things going on. And I finally realized the reason nobody's ever done a single book on it is it would take like three or 4,000 pages. So <laughs> uh, th- then I decided I'd do one on the first half of the 60s and that even that was gonna be too long. So I focused in on one year, which I extended into what I call the long 1964 from JFK assassination in November of 63 through mid 65 with um, things like the Voting Rights Act and Medicare and Medicaid and the Watts uprising. Okay, so yeah, let's set the let's set the table um, for where are we in history in this period of time? What is actually just transpired? What does transpire? And what's going to transpire? Okay, well, um, as I say in the subtitle of the book, uh, the the year the '60s, and you could put that in quotation marks, what we think of in the '60s arrived, because really the first uh, few years of the uh, 1960s or more like the 50s. I mean, some things were beginning to brew, particularly in civil rights, but by and large, it's more what people think of um, as as the 50s. Uh, Certainly in terms of music, it was a very tame period with a few notable exceptions. Um, But then all that begins to change in 1964 in a really dramatic way. Uh, One of the uh, clearest signals of that, I think, is uh, something that Uh, As far as I'm aware of, no one had noticed before, but within, uh, I think it was uh, like 11 days, less than two weeks anyway of each other, Lyndon Johnson gave his State of the Union address in early January of 1964, in which he declared unconditional war on poverty and then said later in it that uh, not just some, but all racial discrimination must be ended. And then less than two weeks later, Bob Dylan's The Times They Are Changing was released, and he was talking about almost the same sorts of things from a totally different perspective. The first one now will later be last, um, that the losers now will be later to win. And uh, I suggest in the book that uh, they were uh, sort of an unconscious duet not that either one of them can sing. I'm sure Johnson couldn't. And Dylan writes great songs, and some of them are best sung by him, but mostly others. But if they had been a duet, that their name should have been Zeitgeist, because this idea of uh, really changing things and starting to tackle social problems uh, just was in the air at that time. You mentioned, you touched on music there, and you know, I said Cold War. And so if you think about the interesting things that are happening um, right now, there's a current uh, resurgence around Marilyn Monroe, which happens, it seems every few years because of, you know, she has just been dead, I guess, two years roughly around this period and kind of culturally what's going on around her Elvis Presley's in the backdrop here. Um, and 
JFK was assassinated. And so you have a, you have a new president and, you know, the Cuban Missing Crisis. And so how much, how do you go about dissecting the intersection, the intersection between some of these cultural um, entertainment phenomenons and the political phenomenon in the U S and then the geopolitical impact that some of that's happening. Cause as I sit here and I think, well, um, I'm born in 85, so I wasn't alive just period, obviously, um, you know, a, a, a threat of a nuclear war could very much unite a country, um, and could shift how it thinks about how it should interact in, internally and externally. Yeah. What should well, view so, it leaders? Go ahead. Since you uh, bring that up, I'll, I'll start with that. Also, because that would work chronologically, and then I'll try to get back to the other things you were asking about. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis that occurred in October of 1962, and um, it was it was a real um, awakening, I think, for the uh, the baby boom generation coming along. That um, that they, they, they we're talking here about white middle class and above uh, uh, young people. Um, for the most part, hadn't experienced any sort of tragedy themselves. Uh, there were there's a spate of teen tragedy songs like Teen Angel and, and many others uh, about a you know a tragedy of somebody being killed in a car accident or something. Um, but this idea of the complacent fifties, which weren't really all that complacent, because the the threat of uh, uh, the cloud hanging over it was a mushroom-shaped cloud that they might be happy days, as the later television show would call them. But um, also, kids were hiding under their desks, and I, you don't, didn't have to be more than about six years old to figure out the desk wasn't going to do you any good if a nuke dropped there. But the, the Cuban Missile Crisis um, was a real wake-up, and it, it was something that... Um, um, Actually, it was a lot closer to um, maybe not the total end of the world, but a really horrible uh, nuclear war than even we realized at the time. Documents that came out later after the Soviet Union uh, collapsed and they, they found things on their side. For instance, uh, it turns out that there were a couple of nuclear weapons in Cuba already, um, and that the battlefield commanders there had been told to use them if the United States invaded Cuba. And if they had done that, kind of like what's going on now with Putin talking about how he might use nukes, um, I don't believe there's much chance that he will. But if they did, um, the United States would have responded in kind and it would have escalated one step after another. So that was something that uh, kind of shook the, the complacency of uh, kind of the, the leading edge of the baby boom generation in, in high school at that time. Um, then you, you move uh, just uh, 13 months later when JFK is killed, and that's maybe an even bigger shock than the missile crisis had been because um, younger people identified with JFK. Um, he had talked in his inaugural address about uh, the torch being passed to a new generation of Americans. That wasn't the baby boom generation, to be sure. He was older, but he was very young for a president. Uh, the youngest president ever elected, Theodore Roosevelt, was slightly younger when he succeeded to the office. Um, but the, the the young people there saw him as, as different, as almost like a rock star. And to see somebody like that um, just gunned down um, possibly by one lone nut uh, really kind of shocked people. And so that's one of the reasons I start the book, um, call it the long 1964, a bit before calendar 1964 begins. Um, but then things are, are happening like in, in rapid succession. I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, about Dylan's song and uh, he had he had written it a few months earlier, and one of his friends was in his uh, apartment and saw the typed out song there and it said, uh, uh, Senators and Congressmen, please heed the call. And he says, what is this shit? And Dylan said, well, it seems to be what people want to hear. And that's that's really the point. Um, they, they wanted to hear about a war on poverty. They wanted to hear about a civil rights movement. They wanted to hear about changing things dramatically, uh, as Kennedy had said, get this country moving again. And so in early 1964, 
In addition to the War on Poverty Declaration, Dylan's songs, song things start happening um, over a period of the next few weeks. Um, for, for one thing, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the British invasion, which in the book I argue were two separate invasions, two waves of the invasion, uh, but the Beatles had, had sort of come right after Kennedy to some attention in the United States. But it wasn't until uh, the end of January, the beginning of February of 1964, that Beatle mania just absolutely took off. The Beatles arrived for their first Ed Sullivan show in New York and uh, all these uh, uh, teeny boppers screaming and yelling. Um, and uh, almost, well, at exactly the same time, uh, another song uh, reached number two. It would have been number one for the next uh, several weeks, except it had the misfortune of uh, arriving at the same time that uh, the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand did, and that took over number one. But uh, Leslie Gore's song, You Don't Own Me, uh, which has an absolutely revolutionary uh, message uh, for uh, women. Here's here's this um, this this woman this girl she was uh, uh, 17 at the time uh, singing the song she didn't write it uh, but she's giving voice to something and she had just recently been singing these typical sort of girl group songs uh, about now it's Judy's turn to cry and the one before that about how she had lost her boyfriend and suddenly she's uh, uh, declaring independence uh, for women and, and saying, I'm not going to just be your, your toy to put on display and all this. And this was really revolutionary. And it reached the top of the charts. Again, it would have been all the way at the top of the charts had it not arrived at the same time as the Beatles for the next several weeks. Then almost exactly the same time, a few days later, um, the film Dr. Strangelove debuted. Um, it was originally set to have come out, uh, the, the, the first uh, showing of it was scheduled to be on November 22nd, 1963, uh, but it turned out that audiences would have been otherwise occupied, and so they put it off. But Dr. Strangelove, um, you mentioned the Cold War, Dr. Strangelove um, just totally breaks with that Cold War mentality. Um, it's, it's a comedy, um, uh, someone called a black comedy, uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, who made the film, called it a nightmare comedy. It's a comedy about the end of the world, but totally making fun of the uh, military leaders in the country. Um, and, and doing this, uh, I mean, the whole idea came from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And actually what, uh, what they're doing in the film they had no way of knowing, but it turned out later uh, as records were released <clears throat> about uh, what was going on during the missile crisis that a lot of the really crazy stuff about, well, you know, we'll just go ahead and have the war and yeah, we might have a few million people killed, but then it'll be fine, uh, was actually going on there. And uh, a lot of critics thought that this film was going to just be terrible. Some were calling for it to be banned because it would be seen as unpatriotic. Um, and yet it immediately soared to the top of the movie charts. Um, again, a younger audience uh, struck by this, throwing off the, the Cold War mentality. Um, and, uh, and also a major thing in the film is that it's kind of blaming um, war in general, and in particular, the, the kind of destruction of the world is being depicted on masculine insecurity. Uh, the uh, uh, General Jack D. Ripper, who uh, without authorization launches an attack on the Soviet Union, uh, is suffering from what would later be uh, called ED, and basically because he's in that condition, um, he's he, he doesn't want to, he says, be sapped of my precious bodily fluids. Um, and I, I, I learned this, he says, uh, during the act of love. Um, and I, I don't avoid women anymore, but I do deny them my essence. And, and then by the end, Dr. Strangelove, who um, is a, a former Nazi scientist and is in a wheelchair, is getting so excited that they're all going to have to go underground, but um, they will have to have a ratio of 10 women to every man, and the women will be, have, have to be selected for their sexual attractiveness. 
uh, for the men being called to greater duty on this. And Dr. Strangelove gets so excited by this that he's able to stand up and raise his arm in a phallic Hitlerian salute. My inferior, I can walk. So, you know, it's 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 hilarious, but it's about a terrible subject. But this caught on uh, in, in a great way. Uh, just one more thing. Early in 1964, about two to three weeks after that, the uh, brash young boxer, then known as Cassius Clay, fought Sonny Liston and uh, had a huge upset winning the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship. And uh, um, almost immediately, like the next day, there had been rumors and he confirmed that uh, he had joined the Nation of Islam and um, more conservative people wanted him stripped of the title and, and all that sort of thing. He had become very close friends with Malcolm X. Malcolm X at the time was um, breaking with the so-called honorable Elijah Muhammad, who was not at all honorable, uh, but Clay, uh, who Elijah Muhammad gave the name of Muhammad Ali, remained uh, enthralled with this charlatan. Um, and uh, about a year later, um, people in the Nation of Islam uh, killed Malcolm X. So all that's going on in a period of like six or seven weeks at the beginning of 1964. Yeah, and I'm thinking just about some other cultural things, right? So you also have the movie Goldfinger comes out, which is when you go back and watch that movie and the characters' names in there, and obviously... Oh, I, yeah, right. In fact, that, that came out just before calendar 1964. It was around the Christmas season of 63. And the the idea that you have a character named Pussy Galore was just, right. you know... And, and American uh, censors uh, insisted that her that her stage name, her name in the, in, in the uh, movie, couldn't be listed like on posters, but they did allow it to go ahead and be used in the film. And, you know, that... Just a uh, uh, you know wild stuff uh, that wouldn't have been tolerated at all uh, even months before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm looking just going back looking. So Bonanza is the top. This is this before the Bonanza is the top show. Bewitched number two. Gomer Pyle and Andy Griffin are three and four. In the top movies, you're Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, Goldfinger, like uh, and the Carpetbaggers are the top four according again to this IMDb here. But you, you look at that, and I think. When, you know, my generation thinks back to the to the fifties and then part of the sixties, um, at least you kind of think of more of leave it to Beaver type era. But that's not. You might think of, um, you know, later sixties where when Woodstock's around is kind of more of that. When the I guess the, the hippie movement or whatever you call it is is kind of in play. But the early sixties, you know, I don't think of as kind of maybe this. Um, yeah, well, that's right. They weren't, except again for the, the rise of the civil rights movement, which is important in stimulating a lot of the other things. Um, but that's why I, I see the '60s, quote unquote, as as people think of them now, as beginning in 1964. Although the the change that started pretty uh, dramatically in that year just started to accelerate like crazy over the next few years, and and. Uh, things were totally wild by the time you get to about 1967. There's one other thing in this period that, that fascinates me. And you, you touched on the, the assassination of, of JFK and the shock that that was. Um, you have the shock of that, but you also have a population, it seems, that for the most part was pretty trusting a media that wasn't pushing the issue with the White House. Um, so how they perceive maybe top leadership during that time um, was different, especially pre pre JFK assassination, and it's the beginning of that unwinding. I think Nixon, everyone agrees, is probably where it really escalates. But you start to go down this path to where um, the, the the office of the presidency is also to be reshaped. Vietnam War, LBJ. So you you have like a lot of things that are just coming together right at this period of time. Right, and uh, in, in fact, I'm not sure I'm remembering the exact percentage correctly, but uh, Gallup does a poll every year on whether people. Uh, believe that uh, the government uh, is it can be trusted is telling the truth uh, most of the time, at least most of the time. And that was at like 93 percent in 1964. And you mentioned Nixon, but even before Nixon, LBJ and Vietnam just started that on a real downward trajectory. And then with Nixon, it went even further. Both Johnson and Nixon um, just lied all the time. 
the reporters who covered Johnson used to uh, say you can tell a lot about him by his mannerisms. If he smooths down the hair on the back of his head, he's telling the truth. If he pulls on his earlobe, he's telling the truth. But if he moves his lips, he's lying. And that was, that was pretty accurate. I mean, the guy would lie when there was no no point in it. Um, and 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 but the thing is, I mean, Johnson is such a mixture of things. And looking back now, you you see some of the absolutely amazing things that he did at the same time that he was he he had no no desire whatsoever to get into the Vietnam War. And beyond that, we now know from recorded telephone conversations that he saw right from the beginning, early in 1964. That's not the beginning of American involvement there, but it didn't really escalate until uh, Johnson came in. And th that he knew it was hopeless. But uh, kind of what Dr. Strangelove indicates about masculine insecurity, uh, Johnson, if you go back to his youth, um, his, his father uh, wanted him to, to be really manly and sometime when about he was about 11 or 12 years old, uh, little Lyndon would go out with his friends and they would shoot rabbits and things, uh, but he never came home with anything. And his father said, what's wrong with you? The other boys bring back squirrels and rabbits and you never do anything, are you a sissy? And so the next day he shot a rabbit and brought it home. And by Johnson's own testimony later, he said, then I went and threw up. He was so disgusted with killing it. And to me, that's a perfect metaphor for him with Vietnam. He no more wanted to get into Vietnam than he wanted to shoot that rabbit. But he even says in some of these telephone conversations, after he's talked about how this is going to be impossible, fighting a war, uh, you know, going in with uh, white, turned out a lot of black people as well, but uh, in, into an Asian country and fighting in jungles and fighting on their lands. It's, there's just no way we're going to be able to do it. And then he pauses and said, but we must be men. And so that's a big part of the tragedy of the man. I, I have a little thing in the book, uh, <clears throat> talking after talking about a lot of his uh, remarkable accomplishments that uh, um, you can kind of reduce him to a formula, LBJ minus Vietnam equals Mount Rushmore plus LBJ. I mean, he was he was that great in terms of the good he did, but uh, it was all brought down by uh, by Vietnam. Well, um, I'm reminded when you tell the story about the dad of Mel Eaton's uh, book, and I'll link to the show notes for the listeners as well. It's called uh, Protecting the Presidential, Presidential Candidates. And after J, I think that's the book. Uh, anyways, after JFK was assassinated, um, LBJ would go on these rants about how he had more women than Kennedy, and, <laughs> and he was because he was so envious of people, what people thought of Ken, Kennedy and and um, and stuff. And so, yeah, I can I can give you the direct quote in a in a poor imitation of the way LBJ said it. Well, I had more women by accident than JFK ever had by design. Yeah, <laughs> See, that is which, which obviously wasn't true. JFK had several a night, uh, but you were mentioning uh, the media and reporters uh, <laughs> a little while ago. They were virtually all male, and they just kept the lid on that entirely. But Johnson, too, Johnson had, uh, when he was uh, the uh, majority leader in the Senate, he had a room off his Senate office that he called the nookie room that he would take women into. So he sure did have some, but... Uh, his lips were moving when he said he had more than JFK. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's just, but it, it goes to show that there is a sense in Johnson to where he, he does feel um, like he's out to prove something, even when, you know, um, there's, there's really nothing to prove. Okay. You, you slept with more women than JFK. I'm not sure what that's really got to do with <laughs> anything. I mean, that doesn't, you know, that's not really uh well, I can give you another, another example uh, with Johnson. Uh, this isn't, quite in the time period of the book, but uh, I think it was 1966 or 67, and the war in Vietnam was going badly. And after a cabinet meeting, a couple of the uh, cabinet officers were still around, and Johnson proceeded to unzip his pants and pull out what he liked to call old jumbo and said, does Ho Chi Minh have anything like this? And I had found that one a long time ago. It turned out he did the same thing at least one other time. And so... You know, it's it, it it's all sort of like the George Carlin theory of war. Well, and so the, the question I think that 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 kind of leaves you with on some level is what would the public have thought of JFK LBJ if they would have known 
the crudeness in which they were talking about things and, and doing these things, because you, we have the civil rights movement you know, that's, that's, that's brewing here. And you have these guys who are pretending to be, um, you know, people of integrity, family men, whatever it might be, but they're not, they're, they're the, they're the complete antithesis of that. Well, um, that's uh, in the in the realm of what might have happened, not what did happen, and so <laughs> therefore difficult to write the history of. But uh, yeah, but I mean, you can see later that so many different things undermine the trust of, of the public, and and Vietnam and, and LBJ's lies mainly about Vietnam were uh, the the main catalyst to get that started because they were constantly saying, you know, that uh, we see light at the end of the tunnel, the boys will be home by Christmas, and this is year after year, and it keeps getting worse and worse. And so uh, people just become disillusioned with that. But then uh, Nixon comes along and and, uh, lies um, maybe even more than Johnson did. And so by the time you get um, to 1974, when Nixon resigns, uh, and it's clear what he had done in Watergate, um, that uh, the, the public trust in government is really, really down, and it's stayed down with a couple of brief exceptions uh, ever since. Like it, uh, it soars in a major crisis, like right after 9/11, and it was up to you know 80 percent or something, but then uh, falls off right after that, and. Um, I think by the end of the Trump administration, it was down to something like 16 or 17 percent. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, not a straight decline, the, the, the chart would be, but with some squiggles in it and a couple of sh- uh, shots upward, but then right back down uh, pretty much from 1964 to the present. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely it's definitely hard to to, to guess what could have happened. But I think your point is um, that you said is that as we go along. It becomes, you know, when when these guys are caught lying or not fulfilling their promise, um, and then as history moves along and we find out, you know, we have to reshape the way that we viewed this person historically. We started off, he's a good guy. Now the Vietnam War goes bad. Now, well, the, oh, by the way, there was all this other stuff that was going on. And then you start going back and reexamining it. It makes it, it makes it easier, it would seem, um, for the public distrust to, to, to um, you know, to, to get worse and then harder to regain the trust because there's so many people complicit in uh, what's going on. And so uh, let's go to the civil rights movement, though. Tell me, where, where are we at in 1964 with the relations between white America and black America? Okay, well, I mean, uh, um, you could go back, uh, you could probably go back to 1619 or something and the, the arrival of the first enslaved people. And you could go back to the Civil War, which I think is more accurately called the Enslavers' Rebellion. Uh, the the restoration of uh, white rule in the South after Reconstruction and and onward. Um, But uh, kind of the modern civil rights movement is usually dated from 1954, 1955, with the Brown v. Board of Education desegregation decision, a unanimous decision in 1954, uh, which uh, led immediately to uh, calls for revolution virtually in some areas of the South here in Mississippi. Uh, they, uh, one of the newspapers um, had a front page editorial the next day bordered in black like a funeral announcement uh, saying uh, blood stains on white marble steps, meaning the steps of the Supreme Court, that there would be blood shed over this and it was the fault of the Supreme Court. Um, and then in 1955, again in Mississippi, the Emmett Till case, um, a 15, I believe was his age, a uh, year old uh, boy uh, from Chicago whose family had come from Mississippi and he's staying in, in Mississippi in the Delta for uh, the summer and uh, is accused of having uh, whistled at a white woman and her husband and friends go out and, and kill him. And there was a trial that was one of the first ones that um, was really covered by the national media. Uh, and a lot of these people were just horrified at seeing the way the trial took place. And the jury, despite clear evidence, uh, acquitted the two people after a half an hour. And uh, one of them said, we would have been quicker, except we decided to have, uh, stop for a Coke. And then in addition to that, Emmett Till's mother back in Chicago insisted on having an open casket so that people could see 
how he had been beaten and what was done to him. And, and that was uh, published in Jet Magazine, but then in lots of other places. And so, um, and, and then at the end of the year, the Montgomery bus boycott uh, takes place. Uh, and, and other things, and it was in the Montgomery bus boycott that Martin Luther King Jr. first came to national attention. Um, and then some of that continues the Little Rock, Arkansas desegregation um, uh, fight and battle in the streets to some extent in 1957. But uh, things really take off in early 1960 um, with uh, <coughs> sit-ins uh, at, at lunch counters. And um, kind of what's behind all this is the, the growth of a belief in the efficacy of nonviolent resistance, uh, the sort of thing that had been used by Mahatma Gandhi uh, to get independence for India from the British in the late 40s. And Gandhi is basically taking the idea of nonviolence from the teachings of Jesus, as, as he once said, uh, uh, I love your Jesus, it's just some of your Christians I'm not so sure about, which is uh, kind, of, kind of true in general. But anyway, uh, and so King was very much uh, committed to nonviolence, not just as a tactic, but as a philosophy, as a way of life. There's um, another very important person who almost nobody has heard of, James Lawson, who was uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and very much committed to this nonviolence, but also committed to uh, not needing leaders and people shouldn't become leaders and be seen as the face of a movement. Um, and he could have become as famous as King did, but he didn't want to. Uh, he, he turned up just, I guess it was two years ago, maybe even it was last summer, I don't know, uh, when John Lewis died uh, uh, to give the oration at John Lewis's funeral. And um, Lawson is like uh, 91 or something now and just gave this amazing uh, sermon. So anyway, he, he was really the one who got the idea of the sit-in movements. And they were going to do one in Nashville, um, but uh, some students from a um, traditionally uh, black college in Greensboro, North Carolina, beat them to the punch and sat in there. And then sit-ins spread across mostly just the upper South, the deep South. It was, you know, it, it could be suicidal to do something like that at that time. Um, the next year, um, they had a freedom ride, an attempted freedom ride to desegregate the facilities at bus stations that were involved in interstate commerce. Um, they uh, initially got only as far as crossing from Georgia into Alabama when the, they were attacked and one of the buses burned and the whole thing almost came to a, a, a halt there. But uh, John Lewis uh, intervened and said, if we let them stop it through violence, um, the movement will be over. And uh, eventually, the the Kennedys, uh, the, the Kennedys, uh, by which I mean JFK and his brother Robert, who was the Attorney General, but also his closest advisor, um, they they favored civil rights in a vague sort of way. But what they were mainly interested in was the Cold War. Uh, what Kennedy had said in his inaugural address: the long twilight struggle with communism. And because of the end of colonialism uh, around the world, the, most of the European colonial empires were becoming independent countries around 1960, some of them before, um, that's sort of the playing board uh, on communism. Well, they used to say communism versus democracy, really communism versus capitalism or democracy versus totalitarianism. And Initially, the Kennedy's main concern on the civil rights movement was how it would make the United States look around the world if images of peaceful Black people being beaten were on television or on the front pages of newspapers. And so uh, they arranged with the, uh, the Freedom Ride uh, to uh, have them go as far as supposed to be going to New Orleans, to go as far as Jackson, Mississippi, uh, whereupon they'd be arrested and sent to the Portsman Penitentiary. Um, and, and so there wouldn't be any violence for people to see, but they were still being uh, uh, sent off there. Um, but it, it accelerated a lot in 1963, uh, particularly uh, with the campaign in Birmingham, Alabama, that Martin Luther King uh, led 
in in which uh, they they decided that one of the tactics the opponents were using was to uh, arrest everyone. Um, but as Gandhi had shown in India, um, if you have enough people there, they can't arrest everyone because they don't have any place to put them. Um, and so they they but they were arresting the leaders in this Birmingham thing in, in May of 1963. I think they started in April. Um, and uh, they decided that while these people were getting arrested, the the adults, their people who have jobs and their depend their families are dependent on them, they decided to use children, by which they really meant teenagers. Um, who could just go to jail for a while and, you know, no big deal, they just missed some school. Um, and that was a controversial tactic. But any in any event, um, Bull Connor, who was the, his title was something like Director of Public Safety in Birmingham, uh, unleashed police dogs and water cannons on uh, these kids. And then uh, film of this went all over the world. And this was exactly what the Kennedys were most afraid of. And so they tried to reach agreement. Uh, they, they, for one thing, they decided they were going to have to uh, push a civil rights bill. And uh, Kennedy uh, was waiting for the right opportunity. Um, and it came uh, in June when um, previously, uh, the, the, the previous uh, late September, early October, James Meredith had uh, integrated uh, Ole Miss uh, and a massive confrontation with a few people killed over that. But George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, had said segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And uh, when the University of Alabama was being integrated in June of uh, 1963, Wallace went and, as he said, stood in the schoolhouse door to stop this. However, then he just stepped aside. Um, because he knew what had happened in Mississippi. And so the integration of the University of Alabama went forward. Well, Kennedy decided, well, this is the moment, this night I'll go on television and call for a civil rights uh, bill, uh, which he did. And then just before midnight on the same day, back uh, in Jackson, uh, Medgar Evers, the leader of the movement in Mississippi, uh, was shot down and killed in his driveway. And so all that happened like on one day in June of 1963. Uh, interestingly, uh, much earlier that day on the other side of the world where the day arrived earlier, uh, a Buddhist monk lit himself on fire at an intersection in Saigon, Vietnam to protest the South Vietnamese government. And that was on the front pages of paper. So all four of these events really occurred on the same date, June 11th. Um, and so you, I, I was tempted to start the book then, but you know, you could keep pushing it back further. Um, then as far as the civil rights movement, before we get to where the book begins, the other big thing is the March on Washington in August of 1963, where King made his famous, I have a dream speech. John Lewis is the head of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was also speaking and his planned speech uh, was to uh, say that the Kennedy Civil Rights Bill was too little too late. And he included that we were going to march through the South the way Sherman did, nonviolently though. Um, and uh, that was not gonna go over too well with uh, white people in the South. And he was persuaded to tone it down. Um, but anyway, uh, then just a couple of weeks after the March on Washington and this sort of black and white together, as it, it says, and we shall overcome, um, <clears throat> four uh, teenage girls were killed in a church bombing in Birmingham. And that, that, that really kind of indicated just how, uh, what the opposition was willing to do. Um, <clears throat> Mississippi holds its state elections in, in strange years, uh, and there was a state election in November of 1963. <clears throat> Virtually no Black people had been able to register to vote, and the state officials said that, was, that just showed that they didn't want to vote. Uh, so uh, the idea was developed, and we'll go into the details of who and, and got the idea and so forth, but to hold a, a mock election at the same time in black businesses and barber shops and things where they would have a freedom ticket 
as well as the regular um, Democratic and Republican uh, uh, candidates. The Republicans were never got any votes in Mississippi anyway at that time. And some 83,000 Black people turned out to show, indeed, they did want to vote. And this is important in leading into what happened in 1964, because uh, in order to get this thing mobilized in like two weeks in the fall of 1963, um, Howard Lowenstein, who was a, uh, a very liberal uh, intellectual and then done things in Africa, fighting against uh, racism there, and was working with the Mississippi movement. He had contacts at uh, Yale and Stanford, and he said, well, I can get some students to come in from there to help with this organizing for the freedom vote. So after that, in, in that winter, the civil rights people in Mississippi were discussing whether to do that on a much grander scale in the summer of 1964, to bring in a large number of people largely white, although some of the volunteers were black as well, uh, to come into Mississippi to actually get people registered to vote, um, to establish an alternative to the Lily White regular Democratic Party, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and to establish freedom schools where they would uh, teach black children, uh, but also uh, you know, the, the, the three R's, the traditional stuff, but also uh, teach them about Black history and such things. And there was a lot of argument uh, over that, whether it was a good idea to bring them in, but in any event, they went ahead. And uh, before it really got officially underway, um, three civil rights workers were murdered in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And that led to uh, kind of proved exactly what the people in the movement had been saying. Black people were being killed and disappearing and everything, and nobody in the rest of the country was paying any attention. But if some uh, white people uh, were killed from, you know, coming from prominent families elsewhere, there'd be all sorts of attention. And indeed, uh, Johnson immediately was sending in people from the Meridian Naval Air Station looking for them. And the um, FBI established its largest office in the country in Jackson pursuing this case. But the Freedom Summer project went on. And I think that's really the fulcrum of the long year and to a large extent, really the fulcrum of the 1960s. Uh, because coming out of this, um, you, you have uh, a challenge to the uh, established white Mississippi Democratic Party at the National Convention in Atlantic City, uh, where one of the delegates, Fannie Lou Hamer, gave a famous talk about how she had been beaten and so forth. And she, um, the, the delegates that they chose were a few, I think four out of 64 or 68 were white, but they were overwhelmingly black and most of them were the genuine poor people themselves. They weren't representing the poor people, they were the poor people. And they didn't want to compromise. Johnson finally made a compromise that he kind of forced through without their agreement. But one of the things that came out of the compromise was that uh, all to be reflective of the democratic electorate in that state. And so by 1972, the Democratic Convention um, really looked like America, half women and uh, minorities all over the place, no political conventions in earlier years in either party had been, had been like that. Um, I, I mentioned the Freedom Schools, that's kind of the beginning of reclaiming real history um, that um, had been kind of you know, there's a lot of a lot of attempt to whitewash history going on again now, and that had been done from the late 19th century into the early 1960s. Um, there's a saying that the winners always write the history, but in the case of the American Civil War from the late 19th century into the 1960s, it was the losers who wrote the history. They wrote the history of, well, slavery wasn't really uh, so bad. It, you know, people were taken care of and kindly masters and all that. And Reconstruction was this horrible period of ignorant Black people ruling over whites. And this, this became accepted in the North as well as the South. Um, the infamous film Birth of a Nation in 1915, just outrageously racist 
putting that forth, but Gone with the Wind, then in the book form in 1936 and the film in 1939, also painting this moonlight and magnolias and this, this lost civilization that was so wonderful, uh, all of which was totally untrue. And it's, it's in 1964, both with a couple of books that came out by scholars, but also with these freedom schools in Mississippi, that the real history begins to be reborn. And not only African-American history coming out of those freedom schools, but that also leads to other groups that have been left out, uh, um, you know. Latinos, uh, women, uh, Native Americans, all sorts of people, it's history beginning to be explored at that time. Um, I, I know I'm going on here, but the uh, so much came out of this Mississippi Freedom Summer. Another thing that did was one of the major roots of the um, reviving women's movement, because the women who were in the Mississippi Freedom Project that summer uh, were there dedicated to uh, bringing rights and freedoms to Black people, but they began to notice that their uh, their colleagues in the movement, the white males, were treating them as uh, you you can't lead like a uh, a town's uh, um, project in this. Uh, uh, basically, you should be taking notes and uh, making coffee and you know acting like women should act. And after that, uh, after the summer was over, uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had a meeting on the Mississippi coast. And a, an anonymous paper was presented there on the position of women in SNCC, um, and uh, to which uh, Stokely Carmichael uh, responded, the only position uh, for women in SNCC is prone. Uh, which wasn't really the right word. It should have been supine. He meant on their backs. And he was really just joking. He was not one. He was much more in favor of women's equality. But it's out of things like that that the more radical women's movement began to emerge. It's also in 1964, not related to the Freedom Summer Project, but Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, which had come out in hardcover in 1963 and created a bit of a splash, just really took off in this this new climate in the paperback edition sold millions of copies in 1964. So the women's movement is going on and um, all, all sorts of things happening at the same time. Yeah, so, okay, a lot of ground covered there. My, my question is, from your perspective, maybe pick one or two things. Um, there's, there's a litany, obviously. But one or two things that would have been the most impactful to not have had happened during this time period. Um, things that would have been um, best for the country, best for the trajectory that we're, we're now in, and, and what could have been done. The easy, I mean, obviously there's some things, you take like the Russian, the, the Russian missile, uh, the Cuban, Cuban missile crisis, and there's a lot of factors at play there. And, you know, can you stop the Russians from doing stuff or whatever? But, but inside the borders, um, what were some practical things that didn't have to happen that did? Well, um, uh, not not inside the borders in the sense of where the fighting took place, but inside the borders in the sense of where the decisions took place. Uh, clearly, the, the biggest the negative uh, factor was the Vietnam War, and it was a, a totally senseless thing. It was uh, part of this, this Cold War, <clears throat> but um, the American leaders were totally ignorant of Vietnamese culture and uh, history. Um, I, in, in more recent years, have gone to Vietnam, I guess, about eight or nine times, taken students over. And um, one of the things you learn almost immediately is, above everything else, the Vietnamese people hate the Chinese. Um, the American leaders weren't aware of that. And had they known that, the Vietnamese, regardless of whether there was a communist in charge or not, were going to be a buffer against Chinese expansion, as they showed right after um, the Americans left and the new communist Vietnam went to war with China uh, a matter of a couple months later. Um, and they are now um, essentially allied with the United States against China. They've become utterly capitalist, even though they still call themselves uh, communist. 
that all would have happened back in the 1960s and we'd have a few million people uh, still alive instead of having been killed in the war on both sides uh, had they not done that. So that's certainly the biggest tragedy. Um, in terms of, of the changes, though, a lot of the changes were, were for the good um, in, in enormous ways. The, uh, uh, Johnson set out, he, he was not a person of modest expectations. Um, he set out to be the greatest president uh, for Negroes, as uh, they said in those days, uh, even greater than they do more for Negroes than Abraham Lincoln did. And uh, he was going to do more for poor people than Franklin Roosevelt did. He was uh, he had idolized Franklin Roosevelt during the 30s. And in a real sense, he did. Uh, the Civil Rights Act was an enormous accomplishment. He had said when some of his advisors said right after he took over the presidency and he said he was going to push through Kennedy's civil rights bill, uh, which Kennedy incidentally never would have been able to do because he didn't remotely have the skill at getting things through Congress that Johnson did. Um, they told him, you'll never get it done. There's a filibuster in the Senate, the Southern Democrats at the time uh, will filibuster it and it will never get through. Uh, and you will just you know, be spending your political capital. And his response was, what's the president's presidency for? He said, we're going to, to do things. And he immediately said about this, he had an 80 some day filibuster, but he just lasted through it, got the Civil Rights Act passed. Then in 1965, the Voting Rights Act. And incidentally, um, at this time, I mean, you kind of find the roots of the modern uh, right-wing movement that has taken over the Republican Party in the, in the Trump years in Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign in 1964. Um, Goldwater had voted against the Civil Rights Act, although he wasn't really a racist, but that's a longer story. Uh, but he was seen that way in the Deep South, and the Deep South suddenly switches to the Republican Party in this this uh, somersault, more or less, between the two parties on uh, where they stand. And they, uh, the, the more extreme right people got control of state parties, uh, Republican parties, the point where they could nominate Goldwater for the presidency in 64. And um, he famously uh, uh, refused to condemn extremism. Extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Uh, the Republican delegates who did Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York, a Republican moderate to liberal off the stage, wouldn't let him talk. They shouted down a, a proposed amendment to their platform condemning such extremist groups as the Ku Klux Klan and the John Birch Society. And um, the, there were only uh, something like 14 out of well over a thousand uh, delegates there who were black one of whom was Jackie Robinson, who was a lifelong Republican and who had integrated uh, Major League Baseball. And Jackie Robinson said uh, after the convention that when he was on the floor, I finally knew what it must have felt like to be a Jew in Hitler's Germany. And so that was the people who kind of took over the National Party apparatus that year. But that didn't really represent Republicans in general yet. Uh, a substantial majority of Republicans in uh, the Senate and the House voted for both the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Uh, they were even kind of half uh, uh, split 50-50 when it came to voting for Medicare or Medicaid. Um, as late as 2006, every Republican in the Senate voted to extend the Voting Rights Act. Now, not a single Republican in the Senate will even vote to allow debate of restoring the Voting Rights Act. That's how much things have changed. Wow. Okay. I know we're up at the clock here. So we're going to link to the book in the show notes. Obviously, you have a bunch of other books. We'll link to that as well. Um, the, the two questions I always like to ask when I'm talking to a historian who's written a book like this. A, what was the biggest um, thing, the biggest surprise that you discovered in researching the book? And two, uh, or B, I guess it's not two, but B, um, what's the one question that you would like to have answered about this period of time that you studied that you couldn't find answered? Hmm, those are those are tough ones. Um, I mean, as I said, I was sort of working on this for decades and go off to other projects. So um, 
I'm sure there were a lot of surprises in the earlier stages of research. I don't think there were too many surprises um, um, by the time I got into the last two years or so when I was actually writing this book. Um, I, I guess maybe just um, the juxtaposition of so many things happening at the same time. I know, I know another one. That would be, uh, I, I came to the realization that the British invasion, music invasion, um, was really two very distinct things that the Beatles and then the other British groups that followed almost immediately after them uh, were not really bringing uh, American blues back to America. Um, they, they were singing African-American uh, music, but it was more like the girl groups that they were singing, um, who were mostly black performers. Uh, but when the Rolling Stones came in May, this was like a second wave of um, the British invasion coming ashore in the United States, and they were totally into uh, the the blues and the sexuality that was in the blues, and this was something that, that would very much undermine a lot of the kind of traditional ways in America. I knew that that had happened with the British invasion, but I hadn't quite realized that they were two distinct things. Um, uh, so I explore that some in the book. Um, question that I still would like to have answered. Um, I don't know, I mean, Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, acting the way he did, I, I, I think I, pretty well figured out his uh, motivations for that. It's, uh, it's a real tragedy, but um, um, at the moment, I don't think I have. <laughs> I'm sure I should have some questions about it, but I really don't. Okay. All right. Any upcoming projects for us to be on the lookout for? Uh, yes. I've, uh, one of the other directions I went off in uh, uh, while I put the 60s book on the uh, shelf from time to time was looking into the sources of uh, the idea that men are superior to women, because I believe that's the, uh, the model on which all other dominance, inferior uh, hierarchical relationships are based, that anybody who is asserting superiority um, treats the other group, uh, whether it be a racial group, a class group, a national group, a language group, whatever, puts them in the position of women. And if you think of uh, the sort of vulgar language that one man uses to put down another man, almost all of it translates to you are like a woman. And so I started exploring and I did a book, uh, came out in 2001, called Eve Seed, Biology, the Sexes in the Course of History which I went into that in, uh, in great depth. <clears throat> and I'm going back to that subject next and uh, doing it um, in, in a way that uh, kind of explains the subject more deeply, but also in a much shorter book. And there's been a lot of research since then that, that sheds light on that. But I think in, in a real sense, that's probably the most important uh, question uh, for humans to deal with uh, because, um, well, it's, it's often and correctly said that um, racism is the original sin of the United States, but I think misogyny or sexism is the original sin of humanity. And this actually is, was a historical development uh, that, that, that came about uh, roughly uh, 10,000 years ago for reasons that I get into in the book. So that'll be the next book. Okay, well, we'll look forward to reading that when it comes out. Thank you so much for your time today. All right. Enjoy talking with you. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship, or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile. Hi, my name is Michel Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, 
and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.